I'm Jackie, and this is Behind the Talent. For most people, music is just a pastime. They listen to it on the radio on their way to work. They hear it in a restaurant. But for Dylan, it's his whole life. He studied music business at Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee. He now works in artist management. And when you ask him why he dedicated his life to music, the answer is simple. He's a fan. My favorite artist or band of all time is definitely Arcade Fire, which I know was like super cliche indie rock, but that's also just like my field, indie rock and indie pop. That's where my heart lies at, at least in terms of music consumption. And it's funny because this I feel like shows my young age. Yeah, I definitely get where you're coming from. Being on the cusp of millennial and Gen Z is such a hard age group to be in because I identify, and I think you as well, with music from the millennial generation and the Gen Z era. Do you remember how he discovered Arcade Fire? The way I found Arcade Fire was probably in junior high, maybe sixth, seventh grade. And that movie where the wild things are was coming out and there was a trailer for it. And it had their song Wake Up as like the theme song of the trailer. And it's interesting because it comes from their first album, but they I think were about to ramp up for their third album release, which is The Suburbs. When I heard that song Wake Up, I was like, oh my gosh, what is this song? Luckily, it's a super catchy sort of chorus. It's not even really any words. It's just chanting. And so I remember I'd hear it on this commercial all the time, obsessed with it, until finally I was listening to Pandora while studying once. I was doing my homework after school. And this is like when Pandora was still a pretty new thing. This is before really anyone had Spotify, I want to say. And yeah, I think it was like on an indie rock shuffle and it was like playing at the time like passion pit and mgmt and all those like now i feel like we almost want to call them like nostalgia acts even though they're only 10 15 years old but it it felt like a nostalgic time i guess the height of indie rock and so i was obsessed saved that and then i heard the song the suburbs the song ready to start both of those off of the album the suburbs and i was just obsessed and i couldn't stop listening to them and then it sort of just grew onto me that entire album it was one of the first albums i ever bought in full and it's one of the first I ever bought on vinyl and since then I've seen them I want to say three times and they've quickly become hands down no contest my favorite band of all time that's awesome I love that you were able to continue that connection with that band years after you heard the first song would you say Arcade Fire was one of the biggest inspirations for you in getting into the music industry and working behind the scenes totally yeah So you've been working in artist management for a little bit over a year now. How much of an understanding both through your work and in your studies would you say you have of the industry as a whole? Oh gosh, it feels like so little. I know how it works. 
I'm going to say very little, honestly. Like, compared to someone that has, like, just walked into the music industry, it's going to feel like I know everything. But the moment I look, and I compare myself a lot to, I think, my mentors, which is healthy in terms of places to grow, but also so unhealthy because, like, of course, I will not know how much they know. They've been in this industry 20 years, and I have been in it working full-time one year. It just seems like every single time I feel like I understand something, it opens Pan's Labyrinth of more questions that I just don't know. Definitely understand. And I think that comes with any green experience. With the music industry, you just don't really know until you're in it. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to know your perspective on the artist manager from the conversations I've had in previous episodes as well as my own research. It seems the manager kind of has the hardest job of knowing it all. Yes, I feel like that's the hardest one because the manager, everything's a massive web and the manager just holds it together. You don't do anything specific. You just help facilitate everything else that needs to happen. That's really good insight into what a manager's role is within the team. They are the person that makes sure everything happens and really advocating on the artist's behalf. How many other members of the team are there that really help the manager make things happen? Oh man, it's gotta be like 30 Wow, yeah, that's a decent-sized team. When you get a vinyl or CD, assuming people still get those, there's a list of people on the back that get credits. Do all 30 of those people get listed, or is it only a select few? Let's see. So you have the manager, you have the A&R person. There's numerous people that like work with A&R on an artist's team, but you probably have one devoted like A&R guy or girl. And then you have, if there's someone that's like looking for co-arts and stuff, their publisher, uh, their agent, obviously, is huge. It's weird because their agent wouldn't get credit on an album, but they do so much for the artist. It's just not the recording side. Publicist, anyone that's worked with the actual production of it, so like the mixer, master, engineers, all of that. Background vocalists, but I wouldn't even call those on the artist team. Yeah, like you said in your 30, there are just so many to count and there aren't really a lot of guidebooks to a list. There is this one book I remember reading in college when we studied music business. Wait, which book? I remember it was a blue book, and I believe it was called All You Need to Know About the Music Business. Yeah, Donald Passman, what a guy. That book is like hilariously viable. As much as I want to make fun of it, I also know that if I ever am confused on something, I can look in that book and it'll tell me. That's really great advice too for those listening who are maybe just starting out in the music industry and know that book or were assigned that book. It's definitely something to read while in school, but it's also there to revisit when eventually you get out of college and you get into the industry. There were so many times, even when I was just interning, where I was either in a meeting or on a call or having a conversation with somebody and they would start talking about industry things and I may not have known what they were talking about, but I could always go back to that book, look up what they were speaking about, Mm -hmm. and then when the conversation happens again, or if I'm ever in a situation where it's talked about again, I have the context and can participate actively. It's like too detailed, but we need something that's too detailed. You can't like read it straight through. Like it's not a book that's meant to like be read chronologically. And I think it's hard because a lot of classes at colleges will be like, read this book, have someone explain to you a field. And then once you think you understand it, read the chapter so you can like really understand it. 100%. Release timelines was one of those subjects for me. I thought I knew everything I needed from the book, but once I was in that conversation, there were so many elements that I didn't even pick up on in the first read. Talking about release timelines, in your opinion, does the timing of a release affect the success of that record? Oh, it's so hard. Something that I've noticed a lot recently is quality of music for a really good album is insane. 
like the places it can go. When I think of all the classic albums that I love that have become over the time staples, there are albums that you don't even recognize their release, but you know like everything after you discovered it. Is there anyone in particular that comes to mind when you think about this idea of records outliving their release timeline? Casey Musgraves, Golden Hours Grey. I remember the entire release of it was super nonchalant. It got some decent press coverage, like the typical what you'd expect. It was a bit buzzy, but the, like it, it felt like it dropped and everyone's like, this was good. And then it got quiet. I remember listening to it thinking like, this album is so, so great. After numerous listens, it holds up so strong. This has to last longer. And it did. And it's crazy to me how it ended up becoming over a year of an actual like quote unquote rollout. But because it slowly became just more adored and adored and adored, you eventually have music videos coming out seven months later. It's just ridiculous. It pretty much never ends. Yeah, the music video release plans for some of these tracks was crazy. High Horse came out with the album in March of 2018. The music video came out in July of that year. Following High Horse was Rainbow, which came out in February of the following year, almost 11 months after its original release. That album timeline was a great example to look at. Do you think quality of music matters more or the release timeline matters more in terms of the success of the album. I feel like quality music is huge, but then knowing what to do with that quality of music. Timing of it, like, because it can get overshadowed. I'm sure if it drops the same day as, like, Lady Gaga or something like that, but at the same time, if your music isn't exactly the same as Lady Gaga, people are going to love it for different reasons. Do you think it's possible for the manager or even the artist team to do a disservice to an album rollout? Sometimes I think albums will have a really, really strong single and then everything else is kind of more like album material. And I get nervous when that first strong single is dropped at the very beginning. Because if those next two or three singles that come out aren't single songs, people are going to lose that interest to listen to the album. And then may pass over it. I think if the singles aren't indicative of what the album is like, they listen to the album and like, this isn't, this isn't the same as the singles, they're not going to listen to it. I'd rather have almost like less. You save that punchy single for within the album, don't release it beforehand. People listen to this album because they're curious, because they're intrigued by these interesting, less poppy singles. And then they hear the album, hear that major hit, and then it soars up, you know, five months later, it gives everyone that sees all this attention a reason to listen to it. To answer your question, yes, I feel like you can do a disservice to your album, even if the music is good. Do you think it's important for artists to have an understanding of the importance of a good album rollout and release schedule, even for the Lady Gagas of the world who do have a team around them, but also for the artists releasing their first album and not necessarily having the team around them to help them? If it's like a beginner album with no major label, like you don't have steam behind it, I think that can change everything. I'm sure there are many albums that are near perfect albums or just great, great, great records that are being released by these people. Musicians aren't thinking about necessarily a marketing machine. Their team is doing that for them, that there are these people that can be so great and because they're so musically gifted and creative, they're not in a space where they even care about how they release it. They just like drop it on SoundCloud and that's it. And they're like, I'm done. 
but because it's so limited in its scope, no one can discover it, therefore it can't grow. Yeah, what an interesting point to bring up. Not only just looking at release timelines, but the overall success of an artist's career. Does the quality of music matter more, or the people, the manager behind the scenes making the right moves? I'm going to say it depends on, I know I'm ruining it by adding like a clause and not just giving a yes or no. It depends on the music and the genre. I think if you're like an indie music, it's about how good your music is. Like it's about if Pitchfork loves it, it's about, I mean, it has to be accessible. So yes, your manager does play a huge part in that, but I think it leans more into your music, artistic choices, yada, yada, yada. I think if you are in like mainstream pop and rap music and R&B and whatnot, managers are almost more important because I think those songs are more easy to come by. It almost feels like the biggest song is less the best song more just to define the right places at the right time whereas if you're going into anything indie wise the quality i think is and the artistic direction is going to be a lot more vital to its success in creating a fan base all right that wraps up another episode of the podcast i want to thank dylan for coming on and sharing his words of wisdom next episode we have nina an awesome woman in music who knows all of the trials and tributes it takes to be an artist manager of a new band. I'm Jackie, and thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Talent.